This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Amicus is sponsored by HBO and the new documentary series, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court correspondent, and this week we thought we'd talk about something we just don't talk about anymore in Supreme Court circles, Guantanamo Bay. Now, there was a time when Supreme Court watchers talked about nothing but Guantanamo Bay, and here's where I give you a Latin overdose, but this is my first Amicus mea culpa where I tell you that I used to write about Gitmo almost every week, and I don't write about it annually anymore. So let's back up and figure out how that happened. In the Bush era, the U.S. Supreme Court heard at least six decisions that had to do with Gitmo, including the 2006 case, Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, where the court ruled that the military commissions that had been set up at Guantanamo Bay violated the Geneva Conventions, and including the blockbuster 2008 case, Boumediene versus Bush, where the Supreme Court decided that detainees at Guantanamo were entitled to protections of the U.S. Constitution. Right after Boumediene was decided, Barack Obama took office, and one of the first things he did was vow to close Gitmo. But that never happened, and since that 2008 decision, the Supreme Court has been nearly silent on all things Guantanamo, declining to hear case after case that comes up from the courts of appeals. This past week, the court batted away two more challenges to American treatment of detainees at Guantanamo, one involving the publication of photos, the other involving a damages suit, and both involving actual claims of torture at the base. In doing so, the court continued a longstanding trend of letting stand lower court decisions that tend to side with the government. Our first guest today, Jonathan Hafitz, has actually litigated several Guantanamo detainee cases in the federal courts, including that of Mohamedou Oud Slahi, a Mauritanian who's been held at the base since 2002 and whose account of alleged torture there was published this year under the title The Guantanamo Diary. Hafitz teaches law at Seton Hall, and he's the author of several books, most recently, Habeas Corpus After 9-11, Confronting America's New Global Detention System. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Jonathan, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about one of the two cases that the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear this week. Uh, And this was uh, litigation that was brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights. They were seeking access to videos and photographs of a Saudi citizen, Mohammed al-Khatani, the Justices left in place a decision by the Second Circuit ruling that the images did not need to be disclosed under the Freedom of Information Act. And pretty much the argument was that it would harm national security to release the photos because these images were, quote, uniquely susceptible to use by anti-American extremists as propaganda to incite violence against the United States' interests domestically and abroad, end quote. Can you 
talk to us about what seems to be a, a little bit of a counterintuitive argument that says we can't see images of torture because then we would have images of torture? Yeah, I think this is, uh, you know, this is an example of the type of arguments that we've been seeing all along where torture and other abuses are carried out in secret and then the perceived harm that would come from this illegal treatment becomes a reason uh, to continue to keep it secret. I mean, it's really something out of kind of catch-22. I think it's a very dangerous argument, and it's one we've seen repeated in a number of different areas. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a similar type of argument that comes up where uh, some Guantanamo detainees they're continuing to be held and we're saying we can't release them because we tortured them. And so because of that, we either we can't try them in a court or we're afraid that because they tortured them, we have radicalized them in some way. And now we've made them dangerous. I mean, it's one of those situations where you can see kind of the ripple effects of torture as it's carried out. It just contributes to uh, more secrecy and this elastic stretching of a security rationale where you've done something illegal, you've done something wrong, and then the harm that would supposedly flow from that because of the embarrassment becomes itself a security argument for keeping something a secret for longer. Jonathan, you have thought and written an awful lot about this question of torture, particularly at Guantanamo, and I wonder if we could get your thoughts on the Senate Intelligence Committee report that came out this December, pretty much confirming what we all knew, which is that the United States has tortured or all but tortured uh, prisoners in detention. And I want to play for you Justice Antonin Scalia in a December interview with Swiss radio station RTS, reflecting back on those conclusions and essentially making the case that sometimes in a ticking time bomb scenario, we just need to torture. I think it is very uh, facile for people to say, oh, torture is terrible. You, you posit the situation where a person that you know for sure knows the location of a nuclear bomb that has been planted in Los Angeles and will kill millions of people. You think it's an easy question? You think it's, it's clear? That, that you cannot use extreme measures to get that information out of that person? I don't think that's so clear at all. And once again, it's a sort of self-righteousness of, of, uh, of, of, of European liberals who uh, uh, answer that question so, so readily and so easily. It's not that easy a question. I, I wonder if you can respond to the fact that Despite all the national discourse we've had on torture, it still seems to some folks as though torture has uh, its supporters. It seems as though there are rationales and reasons to torture and that the lesson of the war on terror is that sometimes torture works. I mean, I think the Senate report on torture, uh, I think it does an excellent job in neutralizing uh, the claim that torture, uh, waterboarding, and some of the other so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, which is just a euphemism for torture, actually produced uh, significant intelligence, intelligence that prevented attacks and saved many American lives. Uh, I think it's unfortunate, though, that there's not been a greater effort to show that regardless of its effectiveness, uh, torture is illegal, immoral, 
And so I, I think that it's conceivable that, you know, a future administration could try to bring back torture techniques. I think Fortunately, many people in you know people within the CIA and most people within uh, the military and other uh, parts of the national security apparatus do not want to bring back torture, at least as it was practiced sort of during the uh, height of the Bush administration. Uh, that they recognize torture is not effective and causes grave reputational harm that undermines the United States' ability to fight terrorism. But I do think there are still segments of the American public, I think, you know, the percentage is distressingly high, that think torture is something that's, you know, worth doing if it protects security. And so uh, I think part of that is a lot of the deception that had been practiced by the CIA uh, and many other individuals from other agencies and other parts of the U.S. government uh, in which they continued to repeat how effective torture was. I think it's also a consequence of the total failure in the United States to seek any kind of accountability uh, for torture, um, no real effort at uh, criminal prosecutions or no other real accountability mechanism in which blame was uh, assigned and, and culpability was assessed. Jonathan Hafetz teaches law at Seton Hall School of Law. He's the author of several books, most recently Habeas Corpus After 9-11, Confronting America's New Global Detention System. He's also litigated several important detainee cases. Jonathan, thank you very, very much for joining us today on Amicus. Thank you. Amicus is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, a new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 on HBO. The Jinx is filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of the life of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. It exposes long-buried information that was discovered during their seven-year investigation of a series of unsolved crimes. And it was made with the cooperation of Durst, who's maintained his innocence and remains a free man today. The Jinx comes from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the Oscar nominees behind Capturing the Freedmans. Durst actually came to know Jarecki after the release of his feature film, All Good Things, which was a fictional account of Durst's life starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, airs Sunday at 8, only on HBO. Now, our second guest today is Professor Stephen Vladek, who teaches law at American University, Washington College of Law. He is the co-editor-in-chief of the Just Security blog and a senior contributor to the Lawfare blog, and he thinks an awful lot about national security issues. Stephen Vladek, welcome to Amicus. Thanks, Dolly. It's great to be with you. In the first part of our show, we talked a little bit with Jonathan Hafitz about one of the two cases that the Supreme Court didn't take this week, the case that had to do with releasing photographs of alleged torture of prisoners at Guantanamo. I wonder if you could walk us through the second case that the Supreme Court declined to hear this week and give us a sense of what the issues were. The second case is a case out of D.C. called Aljanko versus Gates. And this is a damages suit by a former Guantanamo detainee who actually prevailed in his habeas petition. That is to say, a district judge ruled that the government did not have the authority to continue holding him. Shortly thereafter, he was uh, transferred. He was released from Guantanamo. And he then filed a suit seeking damages on the ground that his detention at Guantanamo had been unlawful. Uh, The DC Circuit threw out that suit on the ground that it was barred by a jurisdiction stripping provision of the 2006 
Military Commissions Act. So in English, uh, what the D.C. Circuit said was that Congress had basically barred the courts from even reaching uh, Mr. Aljanko's damages claim. And so therefore, they could not proceed whether or not it was meritorious. Um, and that was the case that the Supreme Court refused to take up on Monday as well. You know, I think neither of these denials were particularly surprising, Dahlia, given the Supreme Court's track record vis-a-vis Guantanamo. But I think they should and did make headlines in just perpetuating this pattern where anything the lower courts have said, and it's usually the D.C. Circuit, about Guantanamo has basically been left undisturbed by the justices. And I wonder if you could explain to us, Steve, because I think listeners don't know why the majority of these cases come up through the D.C. Circuit. So can you explain why this one uh, lower appeals court really gets to hear the, 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 the lion's share of the Gitmo appeals? Well, it's actually entirely the Supreme Court's fault uh, that all these cases have basically ended up in one circuit. Um, And the reason why is a bit complicated, but to make a long story short, in 2004, when these cases first got to the Supreme Court, there were actually separate Guantanamo cases some that were filed in D.C. because that's where the federal government is, and some that were filed in Los Angeles. Um, And the Supreme Court in 2004 hands down the first Guantanamo decision, a case called Razul versus Bush, where it says the federal courts can hear these cases as a matter of statutory habeas jurisdiction, um, go back to the lower courts and keep going. Uh, let's, Let's now reach the merits of these cases. But what's really curious about that result is the day after Razul, the Supreme Court sent the case from California back to the Ninth Circuit in a one-sentence order that said to the Ninth Circuit, hey, Ninth Circuit, we want you to reconsider your analysis of your jurisdiction over Guantanamo, not in light of what we said yesterday in the Razul case, but in light of what we said in the Jose Padilla case, which was decided the same day as Razul and which held that Padilla had filed in the wrong district court. Um, And so therefore, he had to refile in the right district court. So I I realize this is a bit in the weeds, but the Ninth Circuit basically interpreted that one sentence order as a not so subtle message from the Supreme Court that all these cases belonged in D.C. for no other reason um, than because I guess D.C. was where the federal government is, and it would be um, complicated if these cases were going on elsewhere. Um, Now, part of why that's a really big deal, Dahlia, is because it means that in the Guantanamo litigation to date, there's really no opportunity for a circuit split. And there's no opportunity for the Supreme Court to want to get involved in these cases solely to resolve a conflict in the lower courts. It's only if the D.C. Circuit does something so egregious that the justices are going to pay any attention. So, Steve, I want to play for you a little bit of audio of Justice Anthony Kennedy reading part of what we thought at the time was a landmark decision in a 2008 case, Boumediene. I think at the time, several of us wrote this was going to be the most important case of our lifetimes. Uh, So here's a little bit of Justice Kennedy explaining why this issue of whether prisoners at Guantanamo have the right to habeas corpus must be decided by the Supreme Court and cannot be kicked back to the lower courts. In the ordinary course, we likely would remand to the Court of Appeals to consider in the first instance whether the review procedures are an adequate substitute for habeas corpus. Here, however, there are exceptional circumstances. These include the gravity of the constitutional issues, the length of the detention to date, and the indeterminate time during which detention might continue. Some of these detainees have been in custody for six years. 
So we now reach the question whether the review procedure Congress provided is an adequate substitute. So, Steve, a couple of interesting things uh, there. Here's Justice Kennedy at the time saying, oh, my God, some of these detainees have been in custody for six years. Uh, Here we are. It's 2015. Uh, and the court is not taking up cases that have to do uh, with Gitmo detainees. Uh, I wonder if the court's Guantanamo fatigue is uh, a product of just general public Gitmo fatigue or if they just got the job done in Boumediene. I think it's a that's the right question, Dolly, and I think the answer is probably a little bit of both. But you know, the real question that no one knows the answer to except Justice Kennedy is what was the purpose of Boumediene? Was the purpose of the Supreme Court's 2008 decision to basically invest the Supreme Court in particular in the project of carefully supervising the detention of the then 300 and today 122 detainees at Guantanamo? Or was the purpose something perhaps larger and smaller at the same moment, which is to say, um, was the purpose to reassert the role of the federal courts in general in supervising those detentions, but to really leave the details and the nitty gritty to the lower courts. And I think one thing that we can read into the Supreme Court's refusal to take all but one Guantanamo case um, in the now nearly seven years since Boumediene, and the one case they did take, they, t- they got rid of on a, a technicality, I think suggests that from at least Justice Kennedy's perspective, the point of the exercise was to reassert the role of the federal courts in general. And with that done, there was nothing left to do but leave the lower courts to decide these cases rightly or wrongly, but to decide them in the first instance. And if the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeal, the federal court that hears so many of these cases, had been constituted differently, do you think that some of the petitioners at Guantanamo might have seen more successes in the courts? Or is it simply the case that they were going to lose their appeals post Boumedien because the court didn't set out any kind of real rules about how these cases were going to go forward? Well, I think first it's worth it's worth emphasizing that plenty of the petitioners actually did quite well by the post Boumediene habeas litigation. Um, you know, the people fight about the exact numbers, but somewhere in the ballpark of 38 of the 61 men who filed habeas petitions after Boumediene prevailed on the merits of those petitions. Sometimes the government didn't appeal when a detainee won. Uh, that doesn't mean that those cases weren't successful, of course. But you know, Dahlia, to the larger point, I do think that the very conservative nature of the D.C. Circuit circa 2008 really did show up in some of the key fountainhead post-Bumedian circuit-level decisions that, for uh, example, set forth what burden the government had to meet, um, the relevance or not of international law, the procedural standard, the evidentiary rules. And time and again, we saw four judges in particular, four of the more conservative judges on the D.C. Circuit, uh, Judge Janice Rogers Brown, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, and senior judges Ray Randolph uh, and Lawrence Silverman, showing up on these panels and actually oftentimes forming a majority of these panels that were issuing very pro-government decisions. So I think it's almost certain that had the D.C. Circuit been more ideologically diverse um, when these cases got there, we would have seen some difference in the results. Um, but you know, I'm not sure it would have been that much of a difference compared to how well the detainees were already doing in the district court. 
Steve, I want to play for you an audio clip that for a lot of people was uh, a real benchmark of all the Guantanamo litigation at the U.S. Supreme Court. It's a clip of a back and forth between Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and then Deputy Solicitor General Paul Clement in a 2004 case called Rumsfeld versus Padilla. And it's a back and forth in which Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is wondering, and these are early days in the Guantanamo cases, whether perhaps torture might be going on at the hands of the U.S. authorities. And Paul Clement is reassuring her that, indeed, it's not. Just trust us. Suppose the executive says mild torture, we think, will help get this information. It's not a soldier who does something against the uh, code of military justice, but but it's an executive command. Some systems do that to get information. Well, our executive doesn't, and I think I mean. But there, what, what's constraining? That's the point. Is it just up to the goodwill of the executive? Is there any judicial check? Well, the, this is a situation where there is jurisdiction in the habeas courts. So if, if necessary, they remain open. But I think it's very important. I mean, the court in Ludecky against Watkins made clear that the fact that executive discretion in a war situation can be abused is not a good and sufficient reason for judicial micromanagement and overseeing of that authority. So, so I don't know if you remember that moment as well as I do, Steve, but yes, the, the moment yes. seemed to signal uh, Justice Ginsburg saying, could there be torture at Guantanamo? Paul Clement saying, no, trust us, there's no torture at Guantanamo. And as you may recall, uh, within a day, there was huge reporting by uh, Cy Hirsch at The New Yorker and in The New York Times that there was, in fact, uh, torture going on. Uh, Here we are. It's 10 years later. I think it's now undisputed that there was torture going on. We know that because these cases are still coming up. Does it matter? Does it matter to... Uh, those of us who think about Guantanamo, that there was torture going on at the time? So I think it does matter. And, and Dolly, I think it matters in a couple of different ways. So first and most importantly, I think it underscores why it's so problematic that the sort of peripheral Guantanamo cases, these damages cases, for example, being brought by former detainees are so important, um, even if they're ultimately unsuccessful, because there may not otherwise be a way to litigate whether these individuals in particular were tortured, were treated in a way that was illegal, and so on. But second, you know, I think the specter of torture is continuing to haunt the other side of the Guantanamo conversation and something we haven't really touched upon yet, which is the military commissions. Um, you know, the military commissions are still going on at Guantanamo, but part of why they are, I think, so um, criticized and so discounted by so many folks who have been following these issues is because there is a very real sense that the commissions are only there um, to sanitize and to cover over the extent to which many of the defendants before the commissions were themselves mistreated um, in a way that wouldn't be possible were they to be tried in civilian courts. I think you know, you'll know you get 50 different opinions from 50 people about whether that's actually true, but it's the appearance of why um, that's so important in the commissions that I think is continuing to haunt them to this day and loom over that jurisprudence. So I think we cannot talk about Guantanamo even today when the conditions are 
infinitely better than they were 10, 12 years ago without talking about what happened in the past and without talking about the very real fact that some of the Guantanamo detainees were tortured, that any number of individuals we held elsewhere were tortured, and that to date, there has been no liability, um, no civil liability, um, other than a couple of minor officials at Abu Ghraib, no criminal liability for any of the acts of torture that the United States was involved in after 9-11. Steve, it feels like maybe a grand unifying theme, if we can find one, of these certain denials is that once upon a time, we used to say that Guantanamo was reserved for the worst of the worst. Now we have 120-some detainees left there, and not all of them are the worst of the worst. Some of them are just the unluckiest of the tortured. Uh, And it seems as though whether it's the court declining to take cases where there could be damages afforded to a victim of torture or declining to take a case where there are photographs of a victim of torture, in either case, it seems as though this is all just stuff we need to sweep under the carpet because it flies in the face of the basic premise of Guantanamo, which is it was reserved for the people who were really an existential threat to this country. That I think that that may be part of the mentality. I think it's also worth stressing, though, that separate and apart from Guantanamo, the kinds of claims that the Supreme Court denied on Monday um, are actually very difficult for anyone to bring these days against the federal government. It's very difficult to successfully pursue FOIA litigation in a case that remotely touches upon national security. It is all but impossible to obtain damages against a federal officer, even for relatively clear constitutional violations. And so, you know, I think you're absolutely right, Dahlia, that there is some kind of um, let's not talk about the past mentality when it comes to Guantanamo. I think President Obama has actually been partly responsible for that mentality in so quickly and decisively moving away from looking at accountability for abuses perhaps committed during the prior administration. But I think it would be too easy to let the courts off the hook by saying this is just about Guantanamo. In fact, it is incredibly difficult for any victim of a post-9-11 government counterterrorism policy that went awry to recover any kind of judicial remedy um, for that misconduct. And indeed, the Supreme Court hasn't taken any of those cases either, except Dahlia in the three times that the government lost in the lower courts. When the government loses in the lower courts in a counterterrorism case, the Supreme Court is all too happy to step in and take the case. Since 9-11, the Supreme Court has not granted certiorari in a single non-Guantanamo case or non-military detention case where the party seeking certiorari was not the government and where the underlying question was the validity of a post-9-11 counterterrorism policy. That, to me, is a mind-boggling statistic, even for this court. I wonder if, given that the theme of today's podcast is whatever happened to Guantanamo claims, you can tell us if you have a theory how Guantanamo ends. Uh, We've talked about the extent (laughs) to which the judicial branch has sidelined itself. Uh, How, you know, we've got a a couple dozen folks who may be there forever and ever. Uh, How does this story end for them? So I think it's important to, to separate the question of how Guantanamo ends from how our policy of indefinite military detention ends, because I think those may have different endings. Um, It seems entirely possible, if not likely to me, that on the far side of the 2016 presidential elections, President Obama, who made it one of his promises, who on his second day in office signed an executive order committed to closing Guantanamo, 
find some backroom deal to enter into with the by then lame duck Congress, not to end military detention, but to at least move however many detainees are left by that point um, into the United States for continuing detention, perhaps at a facility in Illinois or elsewhere. I think the real question, Dahlia, is even if we get that far, and that would be a salutary step, at least in my view, then what? Um, and you know the hardest part of the ongoing debate in Congress, especially this week, over what to do about the authorization for use of military force, this 2001 statute that continues to define the entire scope of our armed conflict against al-Qaeda and increasingly the Islamic State, the tail that's wagging that dog is Guantanamo because it's that statute that provides the authority to continue to hold these men. You know, I think the only way that Guantanamo ends in the sense that the only way that we stop detaining all of these individuals is if Congress were to one day repeal that statute. And frankly, I don't see that happening anytime soon. You know, I'm I'm not even that optimistic it'll happen in the next 10 years. Um, that's, I think, a really unfortunate reality. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that part of why certain constituencies in Congress, part of why the executive branch is so committed to keeping this 14-year-old statute on the books, has nothing to do with ongoing military operations in Afghanistan and everything to do with a continuing legal justification for the 122 detainees still at Guantanamo. Professor Stephen Vladek teaches law at American University, Washington College of Law. He's co-editor-in-chief of the Just Security blog and a senior contributor to the Lawfare blog. And his Twitter handle is at Steve underscore Vladek. Steve Vladek, thank you very, very much for joining us this week on Amicus. Thanks, Dahlia. And that's going to do it for this episode of Amicus. We love to hear your thoughts. You can always send us email at amicus, A-M-I-C-U-S, at slate.com. That's amicus at slate.com. If you like what you're hearing on Amicus, please do help us spread the word about this podcast. One of the best ways to do that is to leave a short review on our iTunes page. Just search out Amicus in the iTunes store and click the ratings and reviews tab. We so appreciate your support. Thank you also to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped, and to Oye, which provided today's audio excerpts of the Supreme Court's public sessions. Oye, that's O-Y-E-Z, is a free law project at the Chicago Kent College of Law, part of the Illinois Institute of Technology. Our producer is Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And Andy Bowers is our executive producer. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we'll be back with you soon for another edition of Amicus. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of amazing and wonderful podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.